Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And today we have a special podcast. I'm very pleased to tell you that we have my old friend and colleague Fiona Hill on the show. And we're here to talk about her book, There Is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. I have known Fiona for 30 years. We met a very long time ago and I've followed her career, her meteoric career for uh, those decades. Uh, We started as Russia Hands. Do people still say that, Fiona? Russia hands? Yeah, I don't know whether they do, actually. I don't think they say that. They don't say that anymore. Russia hand. We were people that studied Russia. (laughs) And Fiona went one direction, and I went a different direction, but we stayed in touch. And I was very pleased when I saw that she had uh, written this book. And I said to Fiona, hey, let's talk about this book on the New Books Network, because I bet the listeners will be very interested, and I'm sure that you will be. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marshall. It's great to be here with you. Absolutely. Maybe we could begin the interview by just having you tell a little bit about yourself, what you're doing now. What is your current position and what's going on with you? Well, currently I'm at the Brookings Institution, although I'm saying currently because it's all virtual. So currently I'm actually (laughs) sitting in in my home in Maryland, uh, you know, which is uh, some distance from the Brookings Institution because, you know, everything's on Zoom. Uh, I occasionally go in for meetings, but, you know, with COVID and the pandemic pandemic, shut down we haven't really got back into business again and I've been at Brookings as a senior fellow one way or another for the past 20 years and uh, in that time uh, I've been loaned out twice to the US government uh, once to the National Intelligence Council back in 2006 to 2009 then most recently uh, with the uh, National Security Council under the Trump administration 2017 to 2019. So Brookings has been for the last 20 years my kind of permanent home and before that you know when you and I first met I was at Harvard for uh, many years um, doing PhD like you did in uh, Russian history and um, you know studying but also working at the Kennedy School of Government uh, various technical assistance projects. And I had a brief stint in between with the Eurasia Foundation in Washington, D.C. So that's been me for the last uh, 30 odd years. <laughs> well, it's really good to talk to you. It's funny you mentioned about everything being on Zoom. I had a call the other day with uh, some people, uh, actually, it was people from Cambridge University Press, and there were like five people on the call, and one of them was in an office. And we oh all God. remarked, like, oh, my gosh, you're in an office. That's weird. <laughs> all the rest of us were in, like, our rooms. in an office. So uh, we have a kind of a traditional first question, or at least it's my preferred first questions on my New Books Network interviews. And that is a very simple. Why did you write this book? And I think this is particularly interesting because it's really a, a memoir. You're, you're not, not to put too fine, not, not old. You're in midlife. Um, so it is interesting, and I think it will be interesting to the listeners to know why you decided to write this book. Well, the decision to kind of put the memoir elements um, in it um, was, you know, sort of came along the way. But I've been mulling over <clears throat> writing something on one of the central themes of the book about the rise of populism in the United States for some time. 
even prior to ending up in the Trump administration in you know 2017. And I, from the very beginning of my career, my emergence, I would say, in the United States 1989, when you and I met uh, when I came to Harvard, I'd been really struck by the parallels between the UK, the United States, and Russia on one major front, which was tied to my own personal biography, which was the massive changes in the economy and in the structure of industry beginning in the 1980s, but I suppose in many respects going back to the 1960s and 1970s in the way that you know the world moved away from mass manufacturing and heavy industry, the way that everything had been built up after World War II, and the fact that it had similar impacts in all of those three countries. So it's something that I'd observed for an awfully long time uh, that, you know, you get these huge dislocations in society. So I grew up in the north of England. My dad was a coal miner. He was from multiple generations of coal miners. My whole county, my region in the north of England, County Durham in the northeast of England, was synonymous with coal mining. People talked about the Durham miners. There was a Durham Miners Association that was part of the National Union of Mine Workers in the United Kingdom. It had massive political impacts within um, the UK. The Durham Miners Gala, their kind of like celebration of mining, you know, every year, every politician in Britain would kind of go there. They, they had like big political clout. And they were also like the backbone of the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, mining had been going on in the north of England since the Roman period. There were little kind of coal mines that the, you know, the Romans obviously <laughs> run in a different way, I imagine. But the whole region was one of mining. And when I was born, the mines were all closing. The whole region was being turned on its head. And as I got into my you know, phase of political awareness, which we all kind of reached sometime you know, in our teens, when I was about 14, Margaret Thatcher uh, became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, 1979. And Thatcher wanted to turn the British economy around, modernise it, you know, move away from this mass manufacturing, heavy industrial profile and nationalised industry in the UK. Because after World War II, the coal mines, the steelworks, the shipyards, the railways, you know, you name it, had been nationalised by the government because of... Uh, the devastation of World War II to the British economy and that private owners of all of these uh, enterprises were incapable of uh, really raising the resources to build you know, the uh, country back up again and build the economy back up. So the government had to step in. And those industries remain nationalised basically until Margaret Thatcher comes along. And she engages in this mass privatisation and it results in these tussles with the miners' union, with all kinds of you know other sectors of the British economy, and it results in mass layoffs because privatisation and modernisation lead to shrinkage and removing the economy into the service sector, the new knowledge-based economy. You need different educational skills. You need things in different places. And hundreds of thousands of people in my region lose their jobs all at once. And so I'm a product of post-industrial decline. My dad, you know, lost his job in the coal mines in the 1960s. Then he churned through jobs in the steelworks. Those disappeared, the brickworks. And he ends up working in the National Health Service, which also becomes a sort of a tale for, you know, American other places, led to the care economy, you know, that's emerging. That's still nationalised, <clears throat> isn't, you know, fully privatised. But the um, National Health Service becomes the only real source of employment for people like my father, who's only skilled in one particular profession, uh, a coal miner, and has no other skills or educational qualifications to translate into something else. So every porter in the hospital, every orderly, every auxiliary worker, 
used to work in some kind of big nationalized industry. In fact, most of the porters in my father worked for the hospital were all ex-miners, with one exception. So everybody's kind of looking for something else. My dad was lucky to have a job, but a lot of the people that I grew up with didn't have jobs and didn't get jobs for years. And in the 1980s, when I was thinking about what I would do with myself, I had this great opportunity to go to university because it was going to be paid for by my local education authority because I was from such a poor background. My father basically said to me, this is the title of the book, there's nothing for you here, pet. You know, if you have an education, don't come back. You're going to have to go off somewhere else. So there's that whole kind of dislocation and displacement that comes out of this, you know, people realizing there's no opportunity in their own areas. And once I start to study Russian and I get to the Soviet Union, I see the same thing happening. The Soviet Union, you know, and when you and I were working on together, it was already Russia, modern Russia, because the Soviet Union falls apart when we're kind of partway through doing our degrees. But the Soviet Union has ground to a halt. Central planning has failed. The economy's failed. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev is there trying to kind of wrest the economy into that, you know, 20th century footing, following much of the same pattern that you've seen in the United Kingdom as well. And in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union falls apart, under Boris Yeltsin, a group of reformers do exactly what Margaret Thatcher did, which is try to privatise this massive uh, edifice of heavy industry and manufacturing industry. And the Soviet Union and Russia are exactly like the northeast of England. They're the smokestack industries, the big plants, you know, the big factories, the coal mines, the shipyards, the steelworks. And I, like you, see the same thing happening in real time. And I'm immediately struck by this is just like home. The same thing is happening. And in the United States, when you and I were studying in Harvard, you know, kind of in that late 1980s, early 1990s, it's happening in Massachusetts as well. Outside of the walls of Harvard Yard, places like Somerville and Medford and East Cambridge and all the way across Boston, the old industries are disappearing. People have lost their jobs. Textile mills are closing down in, you know, in and around Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And the old industry is disappearing. And at that point, the new industry hasn't come in. And you're kind of seeing unemployment dislocation, certainly not, you know, behind the rarefied walls of Harvard Yard, but all you have to do is step outside and, you know, go to some of the other places and see it happening. And, you know, that dislocation, people feeling displaced, not quite sure what's going to happen to them. And you kind of fast forward and this starts to have political impacts. Because unlike in, in and around Harvard and Cambridge, where there's Harvard and MIT, and you get this new knowledge economy that kind of builds up and eventually people find new jobs, in many of the other parts of the world, particularly in the northeast of England and also parts of Russia, outside of Moscow, nothing new appears. And people get frustrated, they get angry, their identity disappears with the workplace. And this is a fantastic fertile ground for populist leaders who come in and say, I'm going to make things great again for you. I'm going to come in and fix things. I'm going to get you jobs back. I'm going to put things back to where it was because there's nothing there for people in the future, forgotten places, forgotten people. And I was always very acutely aware of this. When I started working on Russia, I became very interested in this uh, fact. I started looking in the Russian case, it's Siberia, these huge cities that were built up after World War II, especially in the 1970s, with the exploitation of natural resources. And all of those cities like fall apart because they're kind of mono-industry places, big steelworks, big metallurgy, you know, uh, huge mines. I mean, on a scale that's, you know, unfathomable from even the perspective of the United States, let alone, you know, the UK. And millions of people are kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere and the world's moved on without them. And, you know, I, I, in a way, I guess, I've been constantly exploring that whole um, and unpacking what happened to me as a kid and what happened to my family and my region and trying to understand it in a larger context. And then, you know, I end up in the Trump administration. We could talk about how I got in there because it's not just I didn't like just in. 
you know, but I then see populism in the United States at work. And of course, Trump is elected not by Vladimir Putin and the Russian security services, as some people assume, but by American voters in counties that are now part of what the Americans called the Rust Belt. And that didn't used to be the Rust Belt. That was the heartland of manufacturing industry, heavy you know, industry in that big buildup after World War II. That was the motor, literally, particularly the motor manufacturing of the new post-war US economy. But with the post-1980s service sector, you know, finance-based knowledge economy, those places just like the northeast of England and vast swathes of you know, Russia from Siberia to just outside of Moscow have all been left behind. And in all of those places, you see populist politics develop. They kind of look for a strong man or somebody or something that can fix the situation and bring jobs and opportunity back to those places. And so after I have this experience in the Trump administration, which ends up me being a fact witness in the first impeachment trial, and seeing our political you know, partisan infighting the polarization that we have, you know, I feel like I get it. I, I, mean, I understand what's been happening from a particularly this socioeconomic and this kind of political and historical sense. And I went into the government worried about what Russia was up to. I come out of the government really worried about what's happening to the United States. And I think that, well, let me try to put all of this together. I've been on my own personal odyssey of trying to understand since I was 14. You know, I've kind of figured out a few things. I've done it in a kind of strange sort of way via Russia and, you know, kind of coming to the United States. But let me kind of lay this all out to how we kind of got here. And then some thoughts that I've had about how we might be able to get out of it. Because I feel that, you know, here in the United States, we're in one of those pivotal moments where, in fact, our democracy is imperiled by all of these socioeconomic and other issues that date back, reach that whole dislocation of the 1980s, that move from one type of economy to the next. And we're about to do that again, because now we're going to have another move, another huge leap, quantum leap in our uh, economies to artificial intelligence, uh, the the move into these you know, new green technologies, of battery operated electronic uh, electric vehicles, all of kind of the new um, sectors that are emerging, and there's going to be displacement again, because manual workers you know have been long gone, but even people who were retooled for the new knowledge economy post 1980s 90s you know early 2000s are not going to be equipped for the next uh, phase either, and so are we going to just keep on doing this again? Or, you know, how can we start to address this whole kind of issue of um, how we grapple with these massive changes, which result in changes of opportunity for people? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about two things. One is uh, the thesis, and I think it's correct, that there's something about these dislocations that makes people flee toward populism, however defined. And I'd like you to begin by talking a little bit about that. Um, I'm from the Midwest. The Midwest and other areas elected Trump. Uh, these are my people. Actually, uh, the town I grew up in, Wichita, Kansas, is, is largely on the map because of wheat and aircraft factories. <laughs> One of the things about Wichita is it is surrounded by aircraft factories that were built during, well, starting before World War II, but during World War II, to build bombers to uh, level Japanese and German cities. Those aircraft factories, some of them still exist, and they still employ a lot of people there. But I'd be interested in your thoughts about what is it about um, these dislocations that makes people flee to populism and away from, I guess, what I might call a rational politics? Well, I think it really depends in many respects on the length of time that elapses from the, you know, these dislocations. I mean, you know, can you 
be dislocated forever? You know, when does a crisis become just a sort of a permanent state of being? And then the frustrations that come with that. So, you know, we could take Wichita, Kansas, we could take any kind of, you know, place in the American Midwest that, you know, as you pointing out, uh, was ramped up in terms of uh, its manufacturing economy to meet the um, exigencies of wartime. And then afterwards, you know, moved into the sort of like the peacetime economy, you know, might maybe still making military aircraft, but also commercial aircraft, for example, or, you know, kind of uh, tank factories became automobile factories, obviously, in, you know, places like Michigan and, you know, Detroit, you know, kind of, you know, writ large, where GM and Ford and others, you know, are still kind of major uh, employers. Uh, or, you know, you can look at uh, a place like, you know, where I came from in County Durham in the northeast of England, when the mines closed down, Steelworks closed down, nothing else came in. And you've had that for decades. And people who could move, like myself, moved and never came back. But a lot of people couldn't move at all. And, you know, why couldn't they move? Well, there's lots of different reasons. In part, it's qualifications. Um, You know, the local education uh, system was all sort of set up to feed people into a factory, a coal mine. You know, they weren't being kind of set up or given the skill set to develop their own business, you know, for example, entrepreneurial skills. I mean, my uh, education at school was not different from my parents and grandparents. In fact, I was some of the same as textbooks that my grandma, <laughs> before, you know, kind of was using, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, yeah. I remember that vividly. My grandma had a copy of a textbook uh, that she'd had from school. And I was like, ah, it's the same thing. There's nothing new happened in the world, you know, since the 1920s, uh, you know, particularly as Britain had was losing its empire by then. It's kind of a little odd to be taught things from the same, you know, sort of perspective. But that just underscores the point that uh, you know the systems, educational systems, didn't come up, uh, and there wasn't, you know, still the same. There, there wasn't uh, mechanisms put in place for retraining, reskilling. Uh, wasn't funding for that, you know. So people kind of weren't qualified in a way, you know, to be able to move somewhere else. Then there was the issue of that this is multiple generations of people, people who moved in, you know, perhaps in Kansas and elsewhere. They might have done it, moved in for farming, you know, way back, you know, in the uh, in the in the, in the period of the settlement of uh, the Midwest and on the way out to the West. So they've got multiple generations going back to say the what the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. You know, so while your family is there. That's the same phenomenon in the northeast of England. People in that same time frame came into work in the uh, uh, all of the emergent industries of the Industrial Revolution. They moved from the farm uh, to you know the factory and the mine and the shipyard and you know etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And multiple generations might have moved about in search of jobs, but they're all in that same area. I mean, my, my dad's father was a coal miner. His brother was a coal miner. All of his uncles, his great uncles, his great grandfather, and his grandfather after him. I mean, it's just it's basically. Um, everybody, you know, and they all grew up in these small towns and they might move around, but they were all in the same kind of profession and all these generations of people live together. It's hard to do to leave. You essentially become a refugee. You become dislocated from the human capital that you've invested in and built up over time. And then again, you know, in the uh, United Kingdom, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't own their own houses. Um, so they're in rental properties. So they don't, and they haven't built up, they haven't got any assets they can't to liquidate or anything. They haven't got a car. I mean, most not, nobody I knew and my relatives had a car. We had a bike and you'd take the bus, you know, and if the job wasn't in your immediate area and all at once everybody loses their jobs in this region. You can't just move to the next town and villages, you know, relatives would have done for work. My dad moved about from mine to mine for a while. Where do you go? You don't have information. You don't have contacts. You know, it's not kind of like, you know, how to get there and you don't have the money to move. And then you might not be able to afford a rental 
property in somewhere else. In the United States, that was often a lot easier, though mobility has really shrunk down here in the US. People are not as geographically mobile as they used to be. Uh, but there was cheaper, you know, gasoline, people had cars, the, the mass uh, growth of, you know, individual uh, car ownership, the Greyhound bus network, you know, if you couldn't take the train. But there was kind of, there was that earlier expectation of moving, you know, the rental market. But then, of course, we had the Great Recession that, you know, took out the bubble out of housing. But people get shackled in the United States by healthcare and healthcare benefits. And again, another factor of an artifact of World War II, when uh, the government didn't want to have wage inflation and other inflation as a result, and then had um, the workplace offer benefits like healthcare as a kind of increase in wages. But all that has the effect of is tying people in place. In the UK, healthcare goes no matter where you go, because you've got a national health service but everything else becomes more problematic. So people get trapped. And the whole point of this is when you're trapped, you kind of, after a while, you get frustrated. You don't sort of trust people who kind of, you know, say they're going to fix things, but sometimes you're willing to have a gamble. And, you know, when a person comes along and says, I get it, I'm listening to you, and you, you know, your cultural identity is all tied up with this, with all this change. Someone somewhere else seems to be doing better than you, and they don't always look like you or sound like you or come from your kind of background. There's the immigration element. You know, there's all these other kind of changes, or there's this elite that emerges, the people who are qualified and get all the opportunities and you get none. And so you become resentful or you see all of this and you become, you know, nobody's really representing you. Nobody's giving you a voice. So if somebody suddenly comes along like Trump did or, you know, others in other sectors, I hear you, I'm listening to you. You know, you might give, you might gamble on them, might give them a chance and say, okay, yeah, great. You're going to be my champion. You're going to fight there. And then, you know, if nothing else, you're going to show these others, you know, what's like to be me. And to you know, not get anything and not get anywhere, and to see your life taken away from you and things changed. So there's you know that grievance politics, but there's also that desire for people to have something to change. We saw that in Russia. You know, I mean, you and I, when we were looking at this, the 1990s was a disastrous period for most ordinary Russians. They saw a whole bunch of oligarchs emerge, people who had, took advantage of the privatization process. You know, took all the prime assets the plums, the jewels of uh, the Russian economy and former ministers, you know, suddenly become the private owners of the sector they'd been ministers in in the Soviet period. Ordinary people, you know, lose their job, lose their housing, you know, they're, they're kind of stuck. And then somebody like um, Putin comes along and says, well, that was all chaos. This was kind of crazy. I'm going to fix it for you. And, you know, he gets the support of, you know, the, the old former working class stiff. Of course, that was all Russians. And they, you know, kind of basically give him the benefit of the doubt. And he's a populist leader because he's he has no party. There's no, you know, kind of larger um, you know, political, uh, well, there's the state around him. But there's no political party. There's no real kind of checks and balances. It's him and the public. He's directly elected. Just like in the United States, you've got a direct election of the president. So it becomes this personality, this this popular figure who's reading the polls. In, in Putin's case, he has these incredible town halls for hours on end where he communes with the people directly on everything from potholes to, you know, some you can't afford a ballet tattoo and he says he'll go out and get that for them. I mean, these are literal examples. Somebody suddenly appears, like fairy godmother with a ballet tattoo. It's all been set up, you know, kind of in advance and some shoes and a whole thing for the little girl in Siberia who wanted to be in the Nutcracker recital or something, or the potholes in Omsk that have never been filled and suddenly, you know, in real time, trucks appear and start I mean, it's that kind of popular switch. I can fix everything. I can do this for you. You just have to appeal to me directly. And that's going to was Trump's appeal as well. I hear, you know, what you're saying. I see, I know you, you're angry about all this. 
I'm going to be your champion. I'm going to go out and fight these elites who have never done anything for you for years. I'm going to do something for you. And yeah, people that, I, make a I, on that, right? I mean, gamble, they got, I, I really like what you said about a gamble. Because that was the sense I got from many people who voted for Trump is that it was a gamble. It was like, we've seen what everybody else has. We don't want that anymore. This person is appealing to me directly because I'm kind of screwed. And yeah. we understand that he's a weirdo, but heck, why not? Let's try that. And, and, and it wasn't really a rational process because he related to people and relates to people on such an emotional level. Um, you love that guy or you hate him. Yeah. He's not, he's it's not. emotional. It's entertainment. I mean, there's the interesting, you know, kind of fact that many people voted for Trump for the same reason that they'd actually previously voted for Barack Obama. Seen as an outsider from the process, he's giving hope in a, you know, completely, you know, different way. I mean, I you know from my own extended family here, people who voted for Obama um, both times and would have voted for him again if he'd run again and then voted for Trump both times again. Because it's kind of like they didn't want the, the kind of establishment who's given them absolutely nothing. And after a time, people become the establishment if they're in you know, power long enough. But Trump is never going to be that establishment figure because he, he's a, he is um, you know, kind of basically a wild card figure, somebody who's a kind of a law unto himself. He's endlessly entertaining. This is kind of like, and he sticks it to, it's like a big middle finger, you know, extended to all the people that people really it, it, resent because of it, everything that they've done at their expense. It really is. In January, during the election cycle, before Trump was elected that November, I remember sending an email to a couple of friends of mine in which I predicted that Trump would be elected because he's in the party of FU. Yep. And, and, <laughs> and the yeah, party of FU. It could have been anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it could have been anything. And I saw that same look, and I, I you know, can feel that. Um, same sense of, you know, grievance, frustration and, you know, wanting to have the same gesture, honestly. I, I felt that growing up, you know, we, we felt the same way. Like everybody just doesn't care at all about us, you know, kind of the only way that we get out of this circumstance is to leave and lots of people don't want to leave and they want, you know, somebody to be out there fighting for them and they want to show it to everybody else as well. And that's in Russia too. There's a kind of a, we'd call it in the North, I mean, a bloody mindedness, sort of like a, that uh, kind of feeling that, well, okay, if we can't get anything, then let's just stick it to everyone else so they can see how we feel. Not just, you know, how do we kind of get ahead and how do we get out of this predicament? And as I saw this in all three places, you know, it was also, you know, fairly obvious that to me as well that, um, you know, Trump uh, would would prevail in 2016 and why. It wasn't, again, Russian security services, more that, that sentiment in, you know, kind of other places where people feel like, okay, it's our time to make our voice heard. And the same happened in the UK in 2016 with Brexit. Later with the 2019 general election when, um, you know, the same phenomenon of uh, previously, you know, died in the wall, blue democratic states and counties voting for the Republicans, breaking the blue wall. The same thing happened in the north of England. People thought, well, why am I voting for the Labour Party? There's been decades here since the 1980s. Labour have been in power in the 90s under Tony Blair, and they did some things, but not that much. And then they all come and they give us all these promises and they don't really do anything, and they kind of send um, officials up here to get safe seats who don't even know where they are. They're not from the locality. You know, we get nothing. Let's vote for the ruling party, the party who are in power, the Conservatives, this you know, this guy Boris Johnson, give them a chance because he's got a wild card phenomenon. So in 2019, but it's like my hometown, having never voted anything other than Labour or maybe the old style Liberals, you know, back in the you know the Victorian <laughs> uh, they, they vote for the Tories for the very first time ever. Yeah. 
to become yeah. Soviet policy. So they're giving well, it a gamble. I, it's a gamble. It really is. And it's, it's a kind of, it's something to think about that the American electoral system can't present people with better options than they have, but that's a different conversation. Uh, I, I know your time is very valuable and it's a little bit short, but we've talked a little bit about um, the Trump administration, the rise of Trump, and you've done a, a good job, I think, of understanding uh, why Trump was elected. But I want to talk a little bit about um, your entry into the Trump administration. Um, I know from personal correspondence to you that this was a, a difficult decision for you, and it, it, it also has cost you in various ways. And I, I, I think that listeners would be very interested in understanding your thinking when you decided to go ahead and take the invitation of the Trump administration and, and, and work there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the decision-making process was really shaped by national security. So by, you know, kind of all of the work that I've ever done on Russia. And, you know, you and I, as you said, we start off as Russia hands and nobody thinks about that. Anymore. I've been working on Russia for all of my, you know, sentient <laughs> adult life. You know? I started studying Russia in 1984, um, you know, against the backdrop of the miners' strike in the UK. But also, yeah, exactly. That we had the, we have exactly the same starting point. It's the Cold War scare, right? The ultimate scare of uh, the Euro missiles crisis. That's why that's why you and I started studying Russian. You were in the US and I was in the UK, and we were worried that we were going to end up in a massive nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union. And certainly, sitting in the UK, we thought we'd be ground zero for nuclear Armageddon. That would be us, poof, gone, and one big mushroom cloud and into the nuclear winter and all the rest of it. And that tended to concentrate the mind. So as a young, you know, person in high school, um, you know, despite my humble origins, I thought, well, maybe I could go off and become an interpreter. Maybe I could try to sort of understand, you know, what's happening. Maybe one day I could help interpret an arms control negotiation. Just anything to do something practical rather than just sit around waiting to be blown up. <laughs> At least I'm, you know, trying to, you know, basically address the sum of all my fears. So, you know, I go off and then, you know, I meet and, you know, I've, I've spent this whole long time just really trying to get into the psyche of Russia. I mean, you and I, we've done history, we've done culture. You know, I'd written a book about Vladimir Putin, trying to understand him and his motivations with a, you know, with a colleague. You know, I've got these decades of work on Russia. And Russia's interfered in our election and what a mess. You know, there's a huge mess domestically. But there's also how do we go about, you know, heading off more of the same but also, how do we try to put this relationship on a different footing? I mean, the whole impulse all the way since the 1980s has been, how do we stop this confrontation, the crisis? Can we find some modus vivendi in, you know, kind of uh, with, with the Russians? Something that just like works to manage this confrontation and conflict, not to kind of have us in a strategic partnership or anything like that. That's long gone. I mean, we had these fantasies in the 1990s, but how can we just stabilize this in some way? And so... You know, I'd been in the government before the National Intelligence Council. Some of the people I'd worked with there, um, uh, you know, were now either getting detailed over to the new Trump administration or they'd actually, a couple of them had even been in the campaign, like General Flynn, very different person from the person I worked with when I was at the National Intelligence Council. It was almost like it was two different General Flynns. But in any case, he was one of the people who approached me and other people that he'd brought on board that I'd worked with before at the um, National Intelligence Council. And I felt like, well, you know, I really have to do this from the national security perspective. But on the personal level, I mean, it, this was, you know, I'd, I I write in the book that I'd taken part in the Women's March <laughs> the day before getting 
pulled into people said, how the hell could you? I mean, the friend I went with, you know, said to me, oh, she couldn't speak to me for weeks. She's like, what? And I said, look, I mean, I, this was a protest for all women. I mean, there were women of every imaginable background and many fathers and daughters and husbands and their wives and brothers and their sisters there, just basically making a stand against the misogyny and sexism that we saw. You know, in the campaign, it wasn't just Trump. It was just kind of, you know, writ large. It was still a big problem in society. So that was a – and so, like, I did think to myself, okay, I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm going to have to go in there, you know, every day as a woman. I'm also an immigrant, and there's been this horrible anti-immigration stance and racism and everything else. I'm just going to go in there and be myself and stick to my principles every single day. But I really felt that I had to do it from the national security's perspective. But I had a lot of people who said, don't do it. You know, you're kind of going to be people who believe that Trump had colluded with Putin. You're going to be aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise. And I can't speak to you again if you make this decision. Some of them still haven't. And occasionally I get a nasty gram, you know, kind of here and there, still saying, still can't forgive you no matter what you've done since. And others, you know, kind of giving me very stark warnings about, you know, all the things that could happen. I don't think even they could have envisaged some of the things that did happen, actually. <laughs> um, you know, but and then others saying, "Look, it's your duty. You need you do really do need to go in and do this." Another saying, "Go in there, but you know, give yourself a limited time frame." I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got was from someone a colleague at the Brookings Institution, Martin Indyk. He was out the Council on Foreign Relations, and he, you know, also worked in the Middle East space. He'd been the ambassador to Israel. He'd been the Middle East envoy, uh, assistant secretary for the Near East. He's Australian originally. And, you know, a naturalized citizen like myself um, in the national security space. And he said, you've got to make sure that you're um, part of a solution, not part of a problem. As soon as you realize that you're becoming part of a problem, get out of there. And he said, and even better, give yourself just a limited time. And I'd been loaned out by Brookings the National Intelligence Council for a two-year term. And then it was supposed to be renewed for another two-year term. Um, and I got half the way through that second term. And I thought, okay, two years, that sounds good. And then perhaps I'll avoid the campaign, <laughs> you know, kind of when the campaign for re-election starts up again. Well, as I learned, the campaign never stopped. And it got pretty hairy and unpleasant. And, you know, right from the beginning, it was uh, a bit of a nightmare because then I got all kinds of other attacks, you know, kind of from other people I didn't even know, you know, very unfriendly fire from, you know, fellow Americans and political operatives and all kinds of things. So it was, it was kind of in some respects worse than, you know, kind of anticipated. But also at the same time, there were some amazing people that I was working with, uh, people who were non-partisan detailees from across the government, public servants from all backgrounds, many of the people who people saw testifying alongside me, and then people who were political appointees who were partisan, but they were, you know, Republicans, you know, the kind of people, I'm not partisan at all, but the people I'd worked with in the Bush administration. And, you know, we were all working together on the same mission, which was trying to protect American national security and then deal with the incoming, you know, fire from all of this, you know, kind of crazy, chaotic politics that we found ourselves in the middle of. But the decision was really on national security. But yes, it did come at an enormous personal cost. Yeah, I, I find it very interesting because there's a question in everybody's mind who is a professional, and we are professionals. We are trained to do this work. Um, for whom should we work? Um, and at what point do we say, okay, I can't work with this person or in this administration or with this company? Um, and, and again, this is a common thing. I. I, I do find it somewhat surprising that people didn't think, well, Fiona is a professional and she's been called by her government to help in national security issues. She will go and do a good job. <laughs> that, that's what I thought when I saw you'd been appointed. I was like, well, that, that's, a good, that's a good choice. She'll do a good job. Um, and, and I wonder if you see like that, that shifting a little bit, because again, this is surprising that people that we've known for years apparently 
really took umbrage when you went. Well, they did. I mean, I think you know, can, uh, if we're going back again <clears throat> you know, to 2016, 2017, when this all came back, I would still do it. I would go back and do it again. Yeah. However, if I was asked to join the Trump administration in 2024, I absolutely would not. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. So and let me ask this question. Public yeah. service is, you know, very important. Um, and, you know, I think that everybody has to sort of step up on all hands on deck. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think you know, if we have a return of President Trump as the individual, the person who is from the FU party and not from any <laughs> the FU party. party. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd work for the FU party either. Lie about you know, kind of um, everything. Then we're in a whole different realm. We are. This is you know, as I describe in the book, the ghost of Christmas future is staring us in the face of a kind of a Russia type scenario, where we've moved into autocracy and on an authoritarian path and away from the principles of the preamble of the constitution of we the people so me the one and only you know kind of person who you know has no association with anything else right right so th- this is a very open-ended question and i don't know if you can even answer it is what you said you know you entered and you will be yourself and you will stand by your principles were you able to do that or to what extent were you able to do that when you were in government I was able to do it. I mean, again, that also came at you know, some personal cost as well because, you know, there were people inside of, um, you know, the kind of particularly the White, White House, West Wing, or political operative types who tried their utmost to get rid of me all the time. And, you know, that was kind of constantly <laughs> like going out, the, yeah, going out to the media, telling lies about me, lies that persist, you know, still out there on the, on the internet, saying I was this, that, and the other. I was accused of being anonymous for a while, which, of course, now we know who anonymous is. Nobody ever kind of came back and said, oh, sorry about that. You know, kind of, it was just, you know, whatever they could accuse me of, all kinds of strange conspiracy theories. But you know what? I, what really well prepared me for this, honestly, Marshall, was studying the Stalinist era. Um, Go ahead, explain that. Yeah, you you basically spent a lot of time in various, you know, classes hearing about the purges and the denunciations. You thought, God, what was that like? Well, uh, yeah, I I had plenty of that. You know, that idea of denunciation, denos. You know, when you looked into the files and a lot of the archives were opened in the time, you know, that we were studying history, you saw the people weren't denouncing, you know, their fellow Russians or Soviets for any kind of ideological reason. It was just for pure venal issues. People would, you know, denounce their next door neighbor because they wanted the next door neighbor's wife, or they wanted the next door neighbor's wife's coat, or they wanted the next door neighbor's apartment, and there was just all this like petty behavior. And unfortunately, I witnessed a lot of that. You know, a lot of it was kind of people's own personal interest getting you out the way so they could get into the position, not because they wanted to do something on a national security perspective, because they had their own personal private agendas, and that was to me shocking on the one hand because this is the United States I was not expecting that but it was also I thought myself wow well you know huh I know this from another setting actually I can get my head around it and I can kind of figure out how to manage it and I'm just not going to take it personally because you know I I, I presume I wasn't going to get sent to the gulag uh, or you know shot by a firing squad I mean there's worries about personal violence though because people were on the you know, internet still continues to say I should die, and you know, kind of. <laughs> but, you know, That's and I also, bad. you know, grew up in the north of England, went to a rough school, so you know, being there, you know, done that as well, where you know, people would say that to your face, they wouldn't just you know say it anonymously on the internet. So you know, in some respects, I do kind of feel very grateful for my personal life training, you know, back in the hard scrabble northeast of England, where I'd seen it all, and then for my studies of you know, pretty warped. Uh, societal uh, systems in you know the Soviet period under Stalin, but it's a sad commentary 
on the United States that I had to, in this particular genetics, I had to dig deep into those kinds of backgrounds to deal with that kind of situation. Because that's not what anybody expects of the United States. The power of our example as a positive example has not just been tarnished, but I think has been pretty ruined by this episode. Yes, it's not been a good thing for the image of the United States around the world. There's no question about that. And I do think that, you know, the denunciation is, for some reason, it's become a powerful thing. And uh, it has been before, you know, in the McCarthy era, you could say someone was a communist and ruin their life. And now you can say various things on Twitter and I don't know about ruin their life, but you can damage them in various ways. And you have to be, if you want to be a public figure, which I do not, and I don't really envy anyone who is, you have to be very thick skinned and have a lot of support. So I imagine you had a lot of support during this because. Yeah, and I also didn't engage on the internet. I don't have a blog. I don't, I'd never had a Twitter account. I'm just staying away from it. I try not to read the crap that, you know, people write about me. Uh, I, mean, I have, you know, plenty of people tell me about it, <laughs> but I, gotta, I try to stay away from it. Well, I think that's very sensible. I don't really spend any time on Twitter myself, and I, I don't really see uh, how anything sensible can come of, what is it, 63 characters? <laughs> I think it's more than that now. I believe it's like 280. I, I, I don't know. But you're, I actually correct that in the book because I put 140 characters, which well, I thought it was before. And then somebody said, no, yeah. no, it's been increased to 240. I was like, uh, oh, there you go yeah, then. I don't, I don't know, but nothing sensible really can be said in in 240 characters. Except, you know, it's like the old agitprop, you know, kind of from back from the Soviet yeah. period, sloganeering and, you know, kind of just getting out an idea yeah. out there. Yeah, there's no there's no uh, discourse or deliberation to be had on Twitter. It, it yeah. cannot happen. It physically no. cannot happen. So No, it's, it's just very blunt uh, interactions, not even yeah. engaged. I always think of it as gesturing, you know, and that's what chimps yeah. do. Chimps can't talk. They can gesture. They can throw feces at you. <laughs> and, and it seems to me a lot of what happens on Twitter is feces throwing. And, yeah, and I, 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 I don't, you know, I'm not speciesist or anything like that, but I do like to think I'm more intelligent than a chimp. <laughs> Although I think there are probably people who disagree. Um, so anyway, Fiona, let me, let me thank you very much for your time. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Do you have a next project or is there something going on that you want to pitch or talk about or what are you working on well in a way i mean obviously the book just came out at the beginning of october and the book is a bit of a challenge to myself as well i mean there was a lot of um issues that i raised in the book that i haven't quite fully resolved and i'd like uh, to move um forward in you know exploring more of them as well i mean particularly on this kind of practical side of that, how do we start to fix ourselves you know be able to restore some more comedy and, and civility in our politics, which is going to be very hard. I mean, I'm not being naive about it. How can we build some bridges, particularly on particular issues? And, you know, foreign policy, for example, how did foreign policy become such a divisive issue? It never used to be. You know, national security perspective might be differences in how we would approach something, but it used to be more of a kind of a common perspective. The idea that, you know, there was an American shared interest, which has disappeared now. You know, but how can we, you know, the theme of the book is of opportunity, this whole issue of now you only have a 7% chance of doing the kind of journey that, you know, I did from the bottom, you know, 20% of society, top 20% or even further, you know, kind of in my case, um, you know, that's that was the whole fundamental premise of America. The America that I came to is the land of opportunity, the America that you're born into. You know, I had an amazing opportunity. In some respects, my, you know, story, life story is the American dream, but it's not the case for so many other people. And so I want to think myself about what can I do, you know, personally, 
I think we all can do something. We all have agency. It's not about one guy in the White House, but about how all of us, you know, can play a part here to do something to increase opportunity, to turn things around, to give people a stake in the system, to stake in our policy. So I'm thinking really hard now as the kind of depending on how people interact with me in the book, I'm getting great letters from people, all kinds of ideas. So I'm just thinking really concretely now about steps that I can personally take in conjunction with others to try to address some of these issues. Not just write a book and then, you know, disappear. (laughs) You know, how I can actually use it myself as something to build on to move forward and do something. Well, Godspeed and from your lips to God's ears. And that's absolutely terrific. So Fiona, let me let me say thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Marsha. It's great to be with you again. All right. Bye bye. Bye.